Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. A little over 50 years ago, in February of 1974, a young woman called Patty Hearst, living in Berkeley, California, was supposedly, and she's of course famous because she was or is the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst, the great publishing uh, magnate from California. She was abducted, kidnapped by a group called the Symbionese Liberation Army in Berkeley, California. That was just over 50 years ago. The question, of course, which transfixed a nation, uh, a nation which I think has a tendency to be transfixed by these kinds of events, was was she a victim or was she a terrorist? In other words, was she actually kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army or was she a member of that army? It's a, a question which has never fully been resolved. And my guest today on the show, Roger D. Rappaport, who used to live in Berkeley and knows some of the people involved in the case, has a new book out, Searching for pa Patty Hearst. It's a novel, uh, non, uh, a novel, a, a fictional uh, narrative built, of course, around um, the nonfiction case of Patty Hearst. And I'm thrilled that Roger is joining us from Lake Michigan, from uh, Muskegon in Lake Michigan. Roger, uh, before we get to the case itself, why did it transfix the nation? Why did it reminds me in some ways, I guess, of the um, the O.J. Simpson case. Why did it capture the imagination of America back in 1970? Well, to vastly oversimplify, uh, when Patty Hearst was kidnapped uh, from her Berkeley townhouse that she was sharing with her fiance, Steve Weed, um, there was a huge national outpouring of support for the family in its effort to free her, uh, beginning with uh, donations to a ransom campaign. There was a free food program that the SLA, her kidnappers wanted uh, support for. Uh, people were praying for her. And then suddenly one day um, she announced that she was going to stay and fight with the Simonese Liberation Army. And there was a lot of skepticism that this was doctored. Uh, somebody had cooked up a tape for her and put her put her name on it, but that it wasn't really her. Um, but just to make things perfectly clear, a couple of weeks later, uh, after announcing she was joining her kidnappers, um, she was on camera at the bank, uh, the Hibernia Bank in San Francisco, probably not too far from where you live, Andrew. Um, and um, she uh, joined a bank robbery with the SLA. Uh, so and she went overnight. Very much uh, Bonnie-like in the Bonnie and Clyde movie. Uh, for people watching, here we have an image of FBI image of uh, supposedly uh, Patty Hearst with a gun robbing this San Francisco bank. Right, so, and, and sorry, more to the point, she didn't just join the bank robbery. She insisted to the SLA that she wanted to be in the bank with a weapon on camera because a number of her, uh, including her kidnapper uh, Bill Harris, a number of the other members were outside in getaway cars. But she wanted to let the world know that she Did was. Did you want to be a, a Hollywood star? Was this TikTok before TikTok came along, Roger? Well, there was no social media as we know it today. 
but there's no question uh, that she had an agenda. Um, and to make things uh, very simple, the agenda goes a little bit like this. Um, she had never wanted for anything in her life. And suddenly, uh, the daughter of a, of a billionaire family, the Hearst uh, Empire, her father was the chairman of the Hearst Corporation, uh, suddenly found herself in a very strange situation. Um, although the family uh, had access to billions through the corporation, her father um, claimed that he didn't have uh, money in the low millions uh, to ransom her. So this didn't sit well with Patty. And as time went on, uh, she began to realize, uh, even though the SLA realized she was a distinct liability and they now stood a great chance of being blown away by the FBI and the police uh, and offered to let her go, she wasn't sure exactly where she was going to go back to because her house had become a media circus. She had rejected her fiance, Steve Weed, and decided not to marry him. She'd fallen in love with one of the members of the SLA, Willie Wolf. Um, and to make matters even worse, um, she felt strongly um, that if she did turn herself in, um, she wasn't sure where she would go because she had become this incredible public figure. It, it sounds, Roger, a little to me like the, the script of a Hollywood movie. Does it suggest that uh, fact is always better than fiction, particularly in America? Well, it, it did turn out to be a movie. Uh, based on a book on a book and a novel wrote. your novel of course right. uh, but it no. but it lends itself to an american preoccupation of this gray area between fact and fiction for younger listeners who might not be familiar with the america of 1974 remind us roger of of what america was like still in the uh, aftermath um it's still hung over from vietnam wasn't it that's correct the vietnam war was still going on uh, remember, there was the Watergate trial, so Richard Nixon was on the ropes. Uh, a dark time in American history, Roger. And there were a lot of bombings going on. Of course, the SLA kidnapping uh, was in the middle of a time when there was a lot of revolutionary activity going on. There was also a war in the Middle East. There was an energy crisis. So there are many things that mirror uh, some of the issues that we deal yeah, with. We, we've done some shows on how the 70s are like today. Tell us a little bit about this group, the... Symbionese Liberation Army. I'm guessing it wasn't much of an army. What was it? A, a group of uh, hardline uh, Berkeley students? That's correct. Um, at its peak, uh, there were about 10 members. By the time Patty was kidnapped, uh, they were down to eight because two of them, uh, Russ Little and Joe Romero, had been arrested for the murder of a uh, school superintendent, a much-loved uh, school superintendent and the SLA. This was their first official action. And the way they Why got were they started, going around killing people, the Symbionese Liberation Army? Well, just to back up for a second, uh, the, the SLA basically came out of uh, the, the prison uh, movement. There were a number of uh, students who came from the Bay Area who were working uh, with prisoners uh, in Vacaville, Folsom, also uh, Soledad. And one of those prisoners, Donald Fries, escaped from Soledad and joined up with some of the members of this uh, prison reform group, uh, they formed the SLA and they decided uh, that the place to start was the Oakland schools where there was an effort uh, to introduce metal detectors, student ID cards, and also uh, an attempt by some experts from UCLA to start profiling uh, students who might be the most likely to become criminals. So th this murder was widely denounced by the left, uh, the weathermen, 
um, uh, even you know, James uh, I mean, how much of this? It sounds to me, Roger, more like Groucho Marx than Karl Marx. How seriously should we take these characters from the early seventies? Were they taking too, uh, smoking too much weed? To borrow the the, the word from uh, this uh, Patty Hearst's uh, boyfriend before she got kidnapped. I mean, what was going well, on? Why why were young radicals going around killing people in the early seventies? Well, the answer is that they felt that they wanted to break through the clutter, so to speak, of the left, meaning that they wanted to make it clear uh, that revolutionary action was something that needed to happen right away, that they felt that the Vietnam War was still going on. And they had thought uh, when when uh, Lyndon Johnson announced he wasn't running for re-election, that that was going to lead to the end of the Vietnam War, they never imagined that they'd get Richard Nixon. Right, and that was six years before. In right, the they were very, game. very frustrated. Well, how, how, but you, you can tell me what they wrote or said or did. How seriously should we take the Symbionese Liberation Army? Were they just, was it a, 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 a farcical organization? Well, they made a lot of mistakes uh, at the beginning. Of course, this widely denounced uh, murder of the Oakland school superintendent. Well, that's more than a mistake, Roger, isn't it? I mean, that's... That was a disaster. Yeah, for yeah, it was it was a completely uh, wrong-headed move, and they realized very quickly. And a crime. I mean, yeah, beyond right. a disaster, they were going around murdering people. Right. So they decided to take a different tack, and they were looking uh, at the time that uh, their safe house was discovered. Uh, there was a hit list uh, of future targets, uh, and um, Patty Hearst was not on that list. But uh, while they were looking for another candidate. They decided to follow the role of the two Paramos uh, and go for somebody high profile that would get them a lot of attention. And they discovered that Patty Hearst was about to get married. And you mentioned the two Paramos. These were what Uruguayan terrorists, right? Terrorists, right? And they're you know they would go after journalists and editors. so this was a time where ter terrorism was quite chic, wasn't right? It? Yes. And people like Leonard Bernstein were getting in and out of their limousines and celebrating people like the Symbionese Liberation Army, was it? No, I wouldn't go that I wouldn't go that far. At that point, the Symbionese Liberation, even the Weathermen, uh, were, were How did not... they come up with these terms? I know Symbionese Liberation Army is borrowed from the, the, the term symbiosis. Have these people taken too many graduate level classes in sociology at Berkeley? Well, that's the popular interpretation, but actually they really just picked that name out of thin air. It wasn't really uh, uh, connected to anything. But I, but I want to add that by this point, uh, they had been widely denounced as possible agent provocateurs by major figures on the left, like Angela Davis and so on. So basically, they decided to take a different tack, and they decided to kidnap Patty Hearst for two reasons. Number one, uh, they needed money, and number two, they were quite confident that choosing her would get them a lot of attention. They were right about the latter. They did get a lot of attention, but they didn't get the money. And that was where things began to collapse. So tell, okay, so so we got this group, 10 terrorists, whatever you want to call them, troublemakers, people willing to kill people in the name of justice. And then we have this woman, young woman, Patty Hearst, the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst, a, a right-wing media magnate um, from a very wealthy family. Was she a classic spoiled young woman from one of these no, actually, she had had it out with her mother, who was a regent of the University of California. Uh, I wrote a book 
with her fiance, Steve Weed, after she was kidnapped. And he made it very clear that um, she was really at odds with her mother, not just over her politics, but things like going on roots tours to Atlanta where her mother had grown up, where she was using the N-word right and left. Um, so they had, had really had had a falling out. Um, she was close to her dad, who was much more liberal than her mother. He had taught her how to shoot. And it turned out that uh, the SLA quickly uh, took advantage of that. Uh, what happened was that after the kidnapping and the bank robbery, they were on the run to Los Angeles. And that's where they divided up into three groups. She joined her kidnapper, Bill Harris, and his wife, Emily Harris. And they went shopping one day. And while they were out shopping, Bill was being tackled uh, for shoplifting at a sporting goods store. And it was Patty who opened fire uh, with a semi-automatic and an automatic weapon, firing off 80 rounds uh, to get him out of trouble so they could escape. And Bill said afterward, he told me in an interview uh, that of all the SLA members, the, the one that he would most want to cover him was Patty Hearst. Well, well, you know, this that, there's a uh, an absurd element here, Roger. But, you know, here you have a young woman shooting at people, uh, a group of self-appointed Symbionese liberation terrorists assassinating school administrators. What drew you to this? I mean, I, I understand that you lived with uh, Patty's... Um, uh, Patty's fiance, but isn't there something profoundly distasteful about all the people involved, Patty Hearst, the Symbionese Liberation people? Well, there's no question that they, that their actions, you know, as you say, uh, were totally, uh, they were prosecuted for three bank robberies. One person died in one of them uh, in Carmichael, just out Sacramento. And believe it or not, Patty participated in a kidnapping herself I told you about that uh, sporting good uh, uh, shootout. Uh, after that happened, they actually carjacked and kidnapped a 17-year-old high school student. And Patty was one of the kidnappers. So there were kidnapping charges. There were bank robbery charges. Um, and there were basically, uh, there, there was, a, a in the case in the Sacramento bank robbery in Carmichael, there was a woman who died, an innocent woman who uh, came into the bank and um, Emily Harris's gun accidentally discharged. So there was a capital crime there too. So obviously uh, there were many things about the SLA uh, that were- Well, to put it mildly, but you're not answering my question. What's your interest here? You're a distinguished filmmaker, you're an activist, uh, you've written all sorts of successful works. What drew you to this beyond the fact that you had a personal association with Steve Weed? Well, clearly the point that you made at the beginning about whether or not you know she was a victim or a terrorist is the question that everybody's asking. My own research into it uh, has benefited from the fact that I was able to interview uh, one of the kidnappers, Bill Harris, at great length. I interviewed the coroner. Remember, six of the SLA members uh, after that uh, shootout at the sporting goods store. The next day, six of them died in a firefight with the LAPD, including uh, Patty's fiance. So the question is, after all that happened, uh, for much of the, the time following that, for the next uh, 16 months, Patty uh, could have turned herself in at any point. Um, obviously, she didn't. So the question is, um, her legal defense, which, by the way, failed, she was convicted for the San Francisco bank robbery, was that she had been brainwashed. Um, but even Paul Schrader, who made the film based on her book, 
decided to change the ending because he didn't think people would buy it. So there is an issue there about her credibility. And in some ways, it's a little bit of a Rorschach test for America because obviously people have today vastly different opinions and trying to get to the bottom of it. My, my personal interest is that what I've learned covering this first as a journalist and then writing a book with her fiance and now writing this new book is that you can never take one person's word for anything. You've always got to do what you do, which is to cross check. And I want younger people to understand that because there's a, a tendency now to think one person has all the answers and anybody who says they have all has all the answers doesn't know what they're talking about. Right, and your novel um, has a, what we might think of in movie terms, a Rashomon-like quality, lots of different mm -hmm. narratives. But let me come back to this question. Victim or terrorist, so what? Who cares ultimately? Why does it matter whether or not she was one or the other? And clearly there's a little bit of both. Well, I think in the end, it's up to the audience and the reader, of course. I understand, uh, but, but so what? Who cares? Oh, I think it's a, it, it's a terribly important story for this reason that, first of all, it's a unique story. It's never happened where a kidnapped victim turned out to be a bank robber. That's unprecedented. But more to the point, and I think this is this is where the book uh, focuses, uh, you know, the answer to your question is this, that no matter how you look at this case, Patty's own statements, uh, and remember, she was the only member of the SLA who came from a privileged background, resonate today. A lot of what she said about Black Lives Matter, about the Vietnam War, about feminism, um, about the power structures. They even talked about how automation was going to take people, kick people out of work. So there's a lot of what she was talking about that had a ring of truth in these communications uh, that were broadcast uh, nationally, uh, never television, published on the front page of her father's paper. So she was speaking from the heart about what at that point she thought. Now, there's a debate about whether or not this was all scripted. But the truth is, because I've talked to people who were in the room when she was writing, that they were actually toning down what she said because they thought her rhetoric was too inflammatory and a lot of people would think it was concocted. Now, it's possible that she was just acting and putting them on. But remember, she had the ability to walk away at any at any time. So it's a it's a unique uh, uh, situation where the victim uh, of the kidnapping is actually uh, articulating uh, the point of view of the kidnappers and making the case for them. So I think that's what makes it endlessly fascinating. We're speaking with Roger D. Rappaport, the author of Searching for Patty Hearst. Um, it's a novel based on true events, an attempt to get to truth through fiction. He knew some of the people involved with the original kidnapping, lived in Berkeley, so all too familiar with the events. I want to remind everyone that this high-quality uh, guests like Roger Rappaport brought to you with the help of Liberties, a quarterly journal, Culture and Politics, excellent new publication. I'm going to run a short feature on Liberties, and then we'll be back with Roger to talk about the more about why Patty Hearst still matters today or why this case still matters and, and how it reflects on the America of 1974 and perhaps of 2024. So we'll be back in a second. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight. 
of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with Roger D. Rappaport, the author of Searching for Patty Hearst, a fascinating new novel based on the true story and the true kidnapping by the Sibyanese Liberation Army of Patty Hearst, one of the best known, most iconic Americans of the late 20th century. Roger, in the first part of our conversation, you mentioned this remains relevant because the America of 2024 isn't that different from the America of 1974. Perhaps you might say more about that and how we're supposed to respond politically. Of course, in 74, much of the radical violence came from the left today in 2024, seems to come more from the right. That's true. And uh, it's it's interesting that you make that point today because I live in Michigan uh, where a lot of the uh, militia organizations w- were founded. Uh, the modern militia movement was really uh, largely started um, very close to where I live. And um, now a lot of those uh, tactics have been embraced uh, by the right. And we're seeing a lot of arrests, the largest uh, number of arrests ever of right-wing terrorists. It's a unique situation. But a lot of their strategies parallel uh, what we saw in the 70s. Um, ironically, uh, that in, in, in the 70s, the cause, the biggest cause, of course, was the ending the Vietnam War. And now, of course, uh, the right is very much involved in uh, the pro-Putin movement, uh, you know, taking the Russian side. So that's kind of an ironic, ironic twist. It seems, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, that this chapter, the chapter, the tragic, catastrophic chapter of the Weathermen, put an end to the cult of violence on the left. Is there some truth to this, that this somewhat absurd uh, story of the Symbionese so-called Liberation Army and Patty Hearst and the shooting of innocent people, that this woke many progressives up to the catastrophic impact of violence, to the lack of legitimacy? Well, they liberated no one, and they were not an army. Um, And if it hadn't been for the Patty Hearst kidnapping, um, you have to realize that by by within three months of the kidnapping, uh, there were really only three members left. There were a couple in San Quentin, but there were only three members left. So the army had basically collapsed at that point. And I think that it, it was a wake-up call in many ways. It was a kind of an end of an era. But at the same time, Patty, uh, because of her being uh, on the run during all that time, uh, the, the story took a, took a weird twist in that she was ultimately the first one. Well, she and Bill Harris and Emily Harris were arrested on the same day. But she was the first one prosecuted and the first one to go to jail which is a, a very, you know, quite a twist on, on the SLA story. But there's no question that what you're saying is true, um, that it was, it was a, both of those actions, um, beginning with the murder of the Oakland School Superintendent, and then the kidnapping of Patty Hearst basically did uh, represent uh, a moment where a lot of people felt that, that these, these, types, these types of organizations not. Was there a, a racial element here? Of course, Oakland was the place where the, the Black Panthers were, I think, founded or certainly based. Uh, many of the figures out of uh, uh, m- m- many of the tr- tragic incidents associated with them took place in the East Bay. 
Were the Symbionese Liberation Army, people like Bill Harris and Emily Harris, were they all white? Yes, the only black person in the SLA was Donald DeFries, and he died in May of 74. And at that point, everybody everybody left was white. So civil rights causes were not really their focus, although Patty certainly referenced it in her communiques. That was not really a focal point at all. Um, they were much more interested in, in the prison movement, um, in the anti-Vietnam War movement, and feeding the poor. Um, interestingly, um, believe it or not, I've, I've talked to several of the weathermen, and they were uh, in line at the free food program, uh, reparations from, from Patty Hearst. I'm sorry, from, from Randy Hearst. Um, Randy, by the way, I mentioned the fact that he did not uh, ransom his daughter, even though he had the wherewithal to do it. It really amounted to petty cash. But he did do a lot of uh, uh, backdoor uh, dealings with prisoners, including black prisoners, to try to convince them to uh, persuade the SLA to let Patty go. Um, and I'm writing about this in, in searching for Patty Hearst. Uh, we, we have a website, uh, pattyhearst.com. And during my tour in California, a number of people have shared information with me uh, that hadn't been previously published. And I'm actually publishing this week a couple of stories uh, on pattyhearst.com. And one of them is about how Randy Hearst was involved in an effort to work with a group of prisoners uh, to try to talk the SLA uh, into releasing Patty. And it's worth re remembering, um, Roger, because not everyone is certainly not as familiar, intimate with the story as you are, that one of the one of the conditions that the SLA put forward to release Patty was the feeding of the poor. What did that comprise of and, and what came out of it? Well, it was a disaster from the very beginning. Uh, the Hearst and various donors contributed almost $2 million to this uh, food giveaway, but a lot of this food was foil, spoiled. Uh, newsmen were attacked. Uh, there was almost a riot. Uh, so it really didn't go well at all. Um, and it, it was an attempt, it was one of the ransom demands, but it went very, very badly. So that widened the gap between the SLA, the ransom effort and the hearse. Um, incidentally, one thing that most people don't know um, is that Patty, although she was involved in three bank robberies and kidnapping, was only prosecuted once. And while other members of the SLA went to jail uh, in 1992, uh, many years later, uh, for the death of a uh, 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 patron, Myrna Opschel, at the Sacramento Bank, I'm sorry, Carmichael Bank. Uh, Patty uh, was never prosecuted, but her father did write a substantial check uh, to the family in a civil suit as part of an out-of-court settlement. And just to remind everyone, Patty's still alive, isn't she? She yes, was born she, in 1954. Turned, Where does she, she live now? She lives uh, in the New York area and in Charleston. Did you and, talk to her for the book? No, she's not available. Uh, but interestingly, she does give interviews from time to time. And I want to tell you, uh, Andrew, about, about one of them. Um, this was an interview in Variety, which I, which is quite fascinating. So her grandfather uh, left the hands, uh, left the corporation in the hands of uh, corporate uh, managers, not not uh, who dominate the board. Uh, and in his will, uh, he stipulated. Uh, that the family would not um, be able to take back control until the last grandchild who was alive at the time of his death uh, died. And Patty and her cousins very much want to reopen that 
that will, and they have made an effort to do that. She's she's spoken about that. But the key point is that any family member who contests this will or files a lawsuit to try to op open it uh, and unlock the secrecy of it uh, will immediately be disinherited. Sounds like the material for another novel, uh, Roger. Let's go back to 74. It seems as if this was a case that captured the imagination of America because it brings out every parent's fear. America's always been a rather paranoid country when it comes to the kidnapping of children. Yes. What was the, the white middle class response to this, particularly with the idea that Patty Hearst's mind may have, she was physically, her body was kidnapped, but that the SLA had somehow also managed to kidnap, take over her mind. Well, there were public opinion surveys at the time that showed that 70% of the public believed that she was a willing participant in the San Francisco bank robbery. Her lawyer, F. Lee Bailey, who replaced uh, the leftist attorney, um, Terrence Hallinan, who originally defended her, uh, tried the brainwashing defense and it collapsed for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that she had many, many opportunities to turn herself in. But even more devastating was a love token that was found in her purse uh, from Willie Wolf, um, who she... Right, but you're not answering my question. What, what, what does it tell us about an America, especially a middle-class America, where parents were always fearful of their, their children f falling under the, the influence of others? Well, there was a great effort at the time among parents to cancel proms, coming out parties. Um, you know, there was that kind of a panic reaction to, to what had happened to Patty. Um, and you're right. Uh, th this is everybody's worst nightmare. In fact, the Hearst Empire was built on stories about damsels in distress. Ironically, the Hearst Empire, of course, very much in the business of glamorizing war or certainly uh, overseas wars that reflected America well. Was the paranoia... That the, the Patty Hearst uh, story stoked was it rather like the paranoia now that we we read about and hear about about parents and social media and the impact of social media on children? There's no question uh, that many parents reacted uh, in, in very strongly to this kidnapping and, and as I said, you know, proms were canceled and so forth, and a lot of parents, uh, you know, were fearful that this was the beginning of a wave of kidnappings. In fact. That was the argument that the governor and the attorney general used and the FBI used to talk Randy Hearst out of ransoming Patty because he they were convinced that this was going to trigger more. Who was the governor of California at the time? Ronald Reagan. And um, he had appointed. Yes, whom, who also was a man who struggled to distinguish between fact and fiction, especially Hollywood well, fiction. Right. Well, you talked about uh, the free food program. Reagan had a view on that. He publicly said that he hoped that the people who accepted these free food uh, donations from the Hearst family as part of the ransom effort uh, came down with botulism. Uh, very shortly after that, he reappointed Patty's mother to a 16-year term on the Board of Regents at the university she was attending, UC Berkeley. And of course, Patty was just outraged and attacked her mother in these communications. And of course, uh, Ronald Reagan was probably the most unpopular man on UC Berkeley campus. He was the man who shut the campus down, sent the police right. in, in the late 60s. You couldn't make this story up, could you, Roger? No. And what's what's really interesting about all of this paranoia, like, well, you can't ransom her because then they'll start 
kidnapping your other kids and you know this will teach inspire revolutionaries everywhere to go after the children of rich people and god knows they might bomb san simeon well guess what during her bank robbery trial when she was uh giving testimony against the harrises and other uh you know uh the harrises um there was a bombing at san simeon and they just didn't just bomb san simeon they bombed a guest house that they thought was where the hearst family visited although it was state property they still had one cottage um that was theirs um and there was a million dollars worth of damage so there was some justifiable paranoia was there do you think that this case with all its paranoia and the paranoia it stoked did it add to the strength of the what we might think of we've done some shows on this the the prison industrial complex in the united states well that's a major um subplot in this story because one of the reasons that patty was kidnapped was to try to do a deal uh, where they would allow Little and Romero, the two guys who were in jail for uh, on trial for kidna- killing the o- Oakland school superintendent, um, they were there was the idea that they could do a prisoner exchange. So, absolutely, you know, there's there's validity to that. Is there anything in this story, Roger, that's encouraging rather than distasteful? Yes, uh, in searching for Patty Hearst. Uh, I make a real effort to give every every key participant in the story equal time so that they can all offer their point of view. And I think the one hopeful note on this um, this story is this, that um, in, in looking at all these different points of view, um, I think anybody who, who reads, reads the book or studies this case will have an opportunity to better understand where we are today. Um, and what I mean by that is that there's so much insight into all the things that were going wrong that triggered this um, basically faux revolution that, that failed. And today we have another group of people um, who also think uh, that they can use terrorist tactics um, to uh, defeat our democracy. And I think in both cases, uh, they were extremely. Uh, so you're suggesting that, there's a, that there are. Um, literal comparisons between the Symbionese Liberation Army and uh, the, the 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 Proud Boys and the people who attempted to pull off the January 6th coup? Yes. I mean, all you have to do is look at the embracing of, of Putin and his, you know, his bromance uh, with the Trump, the Trump uh, community. And you can understand that the, the idea of democracy uh depends entirely on what you're doing today, which is to find the truth. And did and the Symbionese Liberation Army, did they fetishize the the Putin of their times, Ho Chi Minh or Mao Zedong? <laughs> when, Patty, when Patty was first in captivity in Daly City for almost a, a little over 50 days, she was in a closet and uh, they were reading to her. Willie Wolf was reading to her uh, Chairman Mao's little red book. So yes, uh, they were very, very much into uh, th- that, uh, you know, into Mao. Uh, what more can I say? I mean, clearly she that had an impact on her. Uh, but but this this dialectical materialism and all the things that they were tr- teaching her about, you know, and Shay and so forth. She took the name Tanya, you know, Shay's partner. Um, all of this, I think. Is is emblematic of what we're seeing today, meaning that you know you have these deities um, 
who basically uh, I alone can, can tell you what's really going on. I'm the only person that knows the truth. Only I can save the country. Um, that's that's the Maoist. That is the Maoist perspective. Finally, in terms of perspectives, uh, Roger, your perspective is, I think, and I'm maybe correct me if I'm wrong, that writing about such complex and controversial events as the Patty Hearst case requires the, the Rashomon-like structure of multi-narratives, multi-perspectives in a fictional sense. Is that true? Is that what you learn in part from, from researching and writing this book? Absolutely. And I want to give you one very small example. If you go on the web today and you type in the name Joseph Romero, uh, you will see that he is in prison in Crescent City, California. Actually, he got out of prison, if you can believe this, in 2018. So why is every media organization in the world wrong on that point? So just remind us who Romero is. He was one of the two people who went to jail and was convicted for murdering the Oakland school superintendent. My point is this. I found out about it. Uh, and I, at the point that I found out about it, I was the only journalist anywhere who knew that he wasn't in jail and he'd been out of jail for six years. And this is what you do every day. You, you, you ask these questions to try to find out what people are saying. And, and these are all news organizations, not just the left or the right, everybody. And that's why your, your, your show is so important. That's why I wrote Searching for Patty Hearst, because we want people to keep asking questions and not just... Uh, uh, I was in the post office today and somebody was mailing a check to the Donald Trump Defense Committee. Well, I almost stopped and talked to him about it because there's some things he didn't know about his hard-earned money going uh, to that campaign. And I just wanted to give him a little insight, you know, uh, but he's buying one person's side of the story. That's not a good idea.